Episode 14, The Affair, with Chad and Katrina Moore. Recently, I was searching the internet for statistics on infidelity among ministry couples. I have to admit, the statistics are astounding. Some reporting that 77% of pastors felt they didn't have good marriages, another reporting 40% of pastors are having affairs, and still another saying that 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. Honestly, I question the validity of these statistics. They seem a little extreme to me. But regardless, the truth is that I do personally know plenty of pastors who are divorced. I know many who have cheated on their spouses, and I know some who have been cheated on by their spouses. Today we have the story of Chad and Katrina Moore, whose marriage was left in shambles after an affair. We hope that as you listen today, you learn from their testimony, that you pay attention to the struggles in your own relationships, and even more, that you marvel in the redemptive work of God. Welcome to Productive Ministry. Uh, Our guests today are Chad and Katrina Moore. Chad is the lead pastor at Sun Valley Community Church. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. How are you? Oh, good, good. So um, special topic today. You guys have this this really great uh, testimony about some difficulties that you've had in your marriage. And uh, I just thought it would be really wonderful to to hear your story and to to talk about the way that you got through that. The first thing that I would like to do is just listen and just let you guys tell me what happened. So um, I'm originally from Scotland and uh, Chad is from Texas. And I came to Texas uh, to go to school and I went to a Bible college in, in Dallas. And we met during that time and uh, he was my Sunday school teacher. When we started today, I always thought it was funny that I was kissing my Sunday school teacher. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's really sexy, by the way. Uh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> and so we dated fast and we got married really fast, I would say. And I was, uh, we got married and I was between my junior and senior year in college. Uh-huh. And then we found out in my senior year that I was pregnant with our firstborn, with our son. So I kind of put my dreams and plans on hold. I think at the time I was thinking of going to seminary and things like that, but we had decided that for our son, it would be great if I could stay home. And so we were financially just barely able to do that. And I felt like that was the best thing to do at the time for us. But during that time, I kind of felt a little lost Um, a little, I guess, depressed, honestly, Uh, felt like I had not so much purpose. There was just, you know, the diapers and uh, the cleaning and just staying around the house. And I'm very much a person that loves challenge and excitement. And so I kind of felt a little lost, but I didn't know what to do about it. And during that time, uh, Chad got a job out in Arizona at Sun Valley Community Church. And so we moved. I got involved with the church there. I was involved in the worship team. But I still felt very much that sense of sort of longing, I guess. Chad was doing amazingly well at his job, and I started to become really quite jealous of him. I 
began to be involved very much in the worship ministry because I love to do that. And it was kind of like my outlet to be a creative and to have my kind of my own thing. During that time, I was now a pastor's wife and I felt like I had to pretend everything was okay. You know, so people would ask me, hey, how are you doing? And I would just be like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. When um, in reality, I wasn't fine. But I didn't really know how to communicate that. And I didn't even know, honestly, if it was okay to communicate that. Mm. Because, you know, as a Christian, we're supposed to like have, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And then you add on this layer of pastor's wife, which was new to me. And I just kind of felt a little trapped and isolated, uh, which part of it was definitely my own fault. So I was involved in the worship ministry. And then I became closer and closer to our worship ministry leader. And during that time, boundaries were, were broken that shouldn't have been broken and lines were crossed that should never have been crossed. And we ended up having an affair. And I remember looking at my husband during that time and lying to him every single day. And I'd never lied to Chad before, but here I was now this compulsive liar. I basically at one point told him uh, I was done with the marriage, that I didn't love him anymore and that he just needed to move on. Wow. Yeah, obviously, yeah, devastated by that. You know, two two sides to it. One, because I was in full-time ministry and, you know, public position at the church would preach on the weekends, those kinds of things. There was that that public side to it, you know, the embarrassment and, and all that. And then um, obviously on the private side, just really hurt kind of kind of scared it it felt like at that time uh the person that i married was was not the person that was involved in this it was it was really uh strange in in a lot of ways and so at that time our oldest son was uh he turned 3 during that time he had his third birthday and so i was um uh, kind of thinking katrina would snap out of it you know and the crazy would turn off mm-hmm. and we would be able to work on things but uh, she seemed pretty committed to continuing on that relationship. I was thinking about our son and thinking about how to protect him and just kind of manage life. Finally, when she was like, you know, I don't love you. I don't want this anymore. Uh, I started to believe her. And so I went and saw a lawyer and tried to put some things in place uh, and began to kind of move in that direction, thinking about, okay, I'm going to be a single dad now. Uh, obviously don't know if I can be in ministry anymore, and this is going to be my life. And so I, I kind of went into the ships going down, you know, batting down the hatches, and what do we need to do to kind of kind of survive this thing, but very devastating time. During that time, I went with the other person, and it was this really crazy upside-down kind of world time because everything that I thought was right was now wrong, and everything that was wrong was now right. Or I was trying to make it be. And I would keep talking to God throughout this whole time. I mean, I've been a believer since I was 11 years old. I went to Bible college. I knew what God thought about this. uh, And I was still doing it anyway. I felt the like conviction of the Holy Spirit the whole time. I just felt completely at war within myself. And I would say to God, you know, look, I know this, this, this isn't right, but I, I know it's going to be okay. Or, you know, I would be kind of trying to rationalize with God, which is, of course, crazy. And, mm-hmm. you know, God could have just struck me down with lightning because he's perfectly at liberty to do that or, you know, completely shunned me. But instead, I actually felt 
his presence. I felt like he was still absolutely with me, that he still loved me. He didn't approve of what I was doing, I don't believe, but I I'd still believe that he didn't stop loving me or caring about me. And so I would continue to talk to him and pray. And during that time, it was actually a, a really weird time because I was so disappointed in what I had done. And I knew I had disappointed so many people. And that was very hard for me because I'm a complete perfectionist by nature. And right. I'm an approval addict by nature. And so to have disappointed so many people was so hard for me to deal with. And then, but I had no real concept of what I was doing to my family. So it was a very selfish, self-focused sort of distress I was in. Uh, I had no idea the pain really that I was causing. I was sort of like blinded to it in a sense. And I remember looking in the mirror uh, during that time and thinking to myself, who are you? You know, it was just so not me and yet it was me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would wake up crying in the morning and I would be kind of devastated. And by the end of the day, I'd feel a little better. And then the next day would start again. And it got to such a point where I felt like I'd burned all my bridges. I felt I could burn my bridge with my husband and with his family and with my church and all my friends that I felt trapped in the situation that I was in. And so I felt like, well, you know, you've made your bed, you have to lie in it. But then that, that was just becoming more and more miserable. So one day I just remember praying to God and asking for him to rescue me. And within a few short days, my mom flew over from Scotland. And my mom, she's an interesting character because she's a, a very proud atheist. And so I was kind of telling her why I felt so miserable. You know, and I said, Mom, th this is the thing. I have this relationship here on one hand. And then I know God loves me and I have, have him in this other hand. And I can't have both. And I'm at war. And, and I talked to her more and more about it. And in the end, my mom the proud atheist ultimately said, well, it sounds like you know which you need to do. And I told her, well, mom, here's the deal. I know God is real. I know he loves me. I know I can't give up on him. And she was just like, well, it sounds like your decision has been made. So mm -hmm. my, my atheistic mom helped me choose God's way in a period of time when I felt completely powerless to choose God's way, sadly. And so we flew home to Scotland. And then during that time, I got with some Christian people that have loved me for many years and told them what was going on. And uh, they just ministered to me. And I just prayed during that time, God, for direction. Because see, without our son, it would have been easy just to run away from the whole situation. I could have just left America, stayed in Scotland, and just forgotten the whole mess and not dealt with the problem at all, just ran from it. But because we had our son, I could not leave our son. That would have been impossible for me. And so I kept praying, God, what would you have me do when I come back? What's, what should I do? And he said very clearly to me, I believe, um, I want you to go back to Arizona and I want you to try and work on your marriage. And I said, okay, God. And so that's what I did. I flew back and then I told Chad that was my plan. So basically, when she comes back and says, you know, I want to move home. I want to work on the marriage. You know, she had the audacity to repent, right? At this point, mm -hmm. I was like, to be really blunt, well, you know, hell no, right? I mean, I, we've already gone down this uh, track and, you know, it's, it's not going to be salvageable. And so she moved in with a family who uh, was attending our, our church and began to work on herself and 
counseling and those kinds of things. Because I had already filed divorce even before she for divorce, even before she went to Scotland in Arizona, when you have children involved in that, you have to go to a court mandated class for parenting. And the irony of that is our church actually offered that class to kind of serve the community and help kids. But I didn't go to that one. I, I, I drove like an hour away, you know, to some other place across town. In that class, they gave a statistic that anybody who's listening and your parents are divorced, this statistic should kind of shake you a little bit. Uh, my parents are divorced. Katrina's parents are divorced. And I'm in this class, and the statistic is this, uh, 78%, so almost 8 out of 10, children of divorce will divorce themselves. So I'm driving home from this class. I, I got Josh, our oldest, at home, and he's three, and I'm going to bed, at, and I'm laying in bed at night, and I'm thinking about legacy. In my mind's eye, I'm, I'm having a future conversation with him when he's a teenager, and in my mind's eye, just picturing that, I wanted to be able to tell him, look, man, I did everything I could possibly do, right, mm -hmm. to, uh, to make the marriage work. And the problem was, at this point, Katrina wanted to work on it, and I didn't. And I, I hadn't done everything I could possibly do. I'm laying there in bed, and the scripture comes to mind where God says, If my people who are called by my name uh, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, and I'll forgive them, and I'll heal their land. I started to pray and say, God, is it possible that you know, if I trusted you with this and we went this route, that you could heal my land, that you could heal our family. And so at that point, made the decision not for Katrina to move home, but I would start to go to counseling uh, with her. And so we started to do that. Yeah. And coming back from Scotland, I all I knew was that I wanted to do things God's way because I tried my own way. And boy, did that fail miserably. I think I finally got to a point where I was ready to completely surrender to whatever God wanted to do. So I was living with that family and I just knew that people just don't wake up one morning and decide to have an affair. So I recognized that there was clearly issues within me um, that I needed to deal with. I started to go to counseling every week. I went to celebrate recovery at a, a different church than ours and really began to work on me and my issues because I knew no matter what happened between um, Chad and I, I needed to heal me. I needed to allow God to do whatever he wanted to rebuild me because um, of all the broken hearts in this situation, mine was really broken too. As I began to work on me, I just began to pray and to fast that God would soften Chad's heart toward me and that um, he would see uh, the change. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, if that's what it took, I just chose that I would only, I'd just keep working on myself and that I wouldn't, you know, look to anybody else other than God and that I would wait on him until he married another. In that, just, just that pure focus of doing whatever it takes to get my marriage back but also recognizing that I was not in control of Chad and that was between God and Chad. So that what I could control was working on me and my attitude. As we passed back and forth our son, 
uh, during that time, we were able to see each other and talk to each other. And sometimes it was just a quick hi, but other times there was hour long conversations. It just kind of depended on the day. And slowly but surely, I think Chad began to see the change in me, that he could see that this was for real, um, that I was committed to us if he would have me back. And so we started to go to counseling. And um, within a few short months after that, he asked me to come back home. And I was overjoyed. Wow. Yeah, she was excited. I was terrified when she moved back home. And quite frankly, I mean, we went to counseling every week and I, I hated it. I mean, it was it was hard. But you don't vote with your emotions. You vote with your feet. Right. And we kept yeah. going and, and kept working at it. But uh, she moved home. She was excited. I, I was I was scared. In the course of all that, on the ministry side of things, when the affair happened, it was public, there was church discipline, all that. And so when she moved back home, uh, she also started coming to our church again. And so not only was it commitment to Katrina to work on the marriage with her being back in the house, we let the church know that. And just as there was uh, discipline in the church, there was also restoration. Mm -hmm. uh, which was a public thing. And so uh, the church knew that we, that Katrina had moved home and we were working on the marriage. And so we were living it out at home, really kind of fighting it out, right? Working on the marriage. Our church knew that and prayer support and, and all those, uh, all those kinds of, of things. How long did all of this take? What was the, the whole process like? It was, it was nine months from when uh, Katrina moved out to when she moved back home. So we were separated for nine months. Which is actually not a very long time, considering right. the tremendous damage um, that I had caused. But that first year, like Chad said, <clears throat> we basically fought it out. We It, it sucked. It, I mean, he, he would basically shout a lot at me, and I would kind of just take it. And then after the first year, I was kind of like, okay, we can't keep doing this. So either we go get some more help or we, we've got to figure something else out because we can't just live like this. And so we went back to counseling. We got more help and we oh, had to God. dig really deep. And now we're, we're really grateful for all that work we did because we recognize that when two hearts are surrendered to God's will, that anything is possible. I mean, we, we were going to get divorced. We... Papers had been served. I had caused all this damage. It just seemed too big uh, of a mountain to overcome. And yet, God is the God of mountain movers. You know, he right. moves all kinds of mountains. And so we surrendered to what he wanted uh, for us to do. And it, what's interesting, too, is, you know, as we share our story um, at times, you know, I, I like to remind people just because Chad's a pastor and I'm a pastor's wife, doesn't mean that we have more of the Holy Spirit in us. You know, the same God that lives in us is the same God that lives in you. The same power that he has is the same, that lives, that's in us is the same power that's in everyone else that believes. And so there's no special anointing on us. We mm -hmm. fail. We mess up. We need help. Um, I think for pastors especially uh, and pastor's wives, uh, sometimes it takes more courage to get that help but uh, recognizing that we need it and it's available to us is really important. Yeah, so we kept working on the marriage. I, I'll tell you the, the turning point for me. So we kept working on the marriage and it was, it was getting better, but it was, it was still difficult. Uh, and then Katrina got pregnant with our, our second son. 
with, uh, with Jackson. And the first trimester for her was really tough. She couldn't keep any food down. We had to have a nurse come to the house, IV, all that. So mm-hmm. there were a number of weeks there where I did everything. The only thing I could do at the house with Katrina was, was give and serve. So I was doing my job. The church was growing a ton. I was really busy taking care of our son. And then I would come home and take care of, of her. And in the midst of giving and serving with really nothing in return, that's when mm-hmm. I started to, to kind of, you know, not just choose to love her, but started to uh, kind of fall in love with her again. And one of the things that I learned is, you know, feeling follows action. The more that I gave and served, uh, the more I had genuine, sincere, not perseverance or gutting it out, but genuine, sincere affection uh, towards her. And then, of course, uh, you know, we had Jackson and he's a miracle baby. And here we are. How long has it been? 11 years? 10 years? 11 years? Yeah, at least 11. Wow. And I would say... Katrina's my my best friend. Wow. And we don't have perfect marriage because nobody does. There are no perfect marriages because there are no perfect people. But we're at a place in our marriage that I never thought we would be even prior to the affair. And God's done uh, some amazing things. And the coolest thing, too, is, well, there's many cool things. I mean, we could probably both tell you about many ways that God spoke to us or comforted us or ministered to us during this time. But I think back to our wedding, which was in Dallas. And because I'm Scottish, I had a piper. And Mm -hmm. the bagpiper would um, play as I walked down the aisle. And the song he played was Amazing Grace. And Mm -hmm. little did we both know how much grace we would need in the coming years. And so I, I just think that that's the God we serve. He's so incredible. He is so willing to meet us right in the midst of our brokenness and to help us and restore us and to make it better than it ever was. I love Chad more than I ever dreamed was possible. Before, I didn't know what love was. To love is to give and to serve. It's not to be one from performance. And so I know now what it is to love, to love myself, to love others, is to accept myself and to accept others and not put them on a pedestal or try and judge them because they don't conform. And so with Chad, it's been, it's been easy, frankly, to love Chad. He is the best man that I have ever met. He, to me, is kind of Jesus personified. He forgave me when he didn't have to forgive me, wow. um, for my benefit anyway. He had to forgive me for his, but he, he forgave me. He rescued me. Um, from this kind of dire spiraling situation. And and don't get me wrong, he still, you know, burps and farts and does all that. He's a normal guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he Thank you for that. <laughs> but but he <laughs> he is a man to me that 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 lived out what God asked him to do in a very difficult circumstance. Wow. And and stuck with it. And then we did the work and then we fell back in love. But it was obedience first, but it was it was so worth it. Yeah, God's God's blessed us and he's done a great work. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I think God has shifted the paradigm in my mind of um, he's actually made it more biblical of what it means to be mature, what it means to follow Jesus. Some of those those kinds of things. I think in the church world, we have made up 
things that equal maturity that are that are right, incorrect. Right. And one of the things that God did in this process uh, was teach us both what it really means to follow Jesus and relationships uh, are the barometer, uh, are, are the test of, of how we're doing in our relationship with God. And uh, marriage is the greatest test of that. There's, I, there's a thousand things going through my mind right now. And one of the first things that I want to talk about is the experience of being married to a pastor, because I think that everything that you were describing is something that that is a very common theme among uh, a pastor's spouse, where you said that you were jealous of ministry, that you were that you were feeling depressed and lonely. And had you talked to him about that? No, I hadn't. Yeah. And, and that was a kind of a big uh, issue in our marriage that actually we we rarely, if ever, fought. And um, that was actually a red flag because yeah. then that meant somebody wasn't sharing their opinion because we weren't always agreeing all the time. Um, and so it was, I think, typically, I would not share how I was really feeling. I would hide from Chad, which, of course, blocked our intimacy emotionally. So it was just... No, and, and so, of course, that just festered then, and it developed into bitterness, and I guess set, set it up for me to more easily hurt him because I was already feeling this way towards him. Yeah. I think that one of the things that is a common like misnomer among ministry couples is that it's going to be enough to serve alongside your spouse or to, to follow them. And, I, and I've noticed that especially people who have gone to Bible college and seminary and met there. And then one of their, um, one of them is working at a church and the other one is assisting them in life or assisting them in ministry. And, and they don't think about there's, there's still that need. There's still that call that they might feel. There's still that, um, that need to feel significant and secure and that you're still serving the Lord for people who are going through that right now. What what advice would you give them? Well, I'll tell you just a little bit about what happened for me. I think I came out of college, Bible college, and I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I was a woman who had a Bible degree. <clears throat> I felt like, I mean, I had a major pride issue. I felt like I could preach better than most men, if not all men. Um, I mm -hmm. felt like I did hermeneutics in the Greek, you know, all that so much better, blah, blah, blah. And so I came out with a bit of a chip on my shoulder because now if you were a man, you could go do, you know, go lead a church and go preach at a church. But if you were a woman, your choices in my area of church Christianity was much more limited. It was like you could possibly do worship, but you for sure could do children's ministry. And I just, children's ministry just did not interest me one iota. I love right. my own children, but every other kid is case by case basis. And so I was not like interested in that at all. I think for me then seeing Chad do what he was doing, he was doing kind of everything I wanted to do. He was preaching. He was killing it. If you haven't heard Chad speak, he's an incredible communicator. Mm -hmm. um, he was helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus left, right, and center. And so it was like, wow, he's doing everything I went to school to do and want to do, but I'm not doing it. And so there was that. But then I think what I realized was I need to clearly figure out me and what God has purposed and called me to do. And I think I was so focused on uh, being jealous of Chad that that was taking all my focus away and energy away of hearing what God might want for me to do. Yeah, did, that build, did that build an animosity towards your husband? 
Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's why I was saying I was I was jealous of him. I resented him. I became bitter towards him. But I wouldn't tell him any of my feelings because I know he would have listened to me and most likely understood to most degree, you know, being a man, I think there's a little bit of a difference there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, and Katrina said this earlier, you know, we never fought. Uh, if you're not ever fighting in your marriage, then then one person is unnecessary. It's like a really important uh, aspect of any healthy relationship. Because uh, disagreement is honesty. Honesty is where you build trust, uh, where you share truth. There's no truth. There's no trust. There's no trust. There's no relationship. And so I think we got to a point, and neither one of us realized it, we probably got to a point where we didn't have a relationship. We had an arrangement. And it was because uh, neither one of us, and again, we, we come from broken homes, neither one of us saw examples of how healthy relationships work. And so we didn't know how to work a healthy relationship. It blew up on us uh, in ways that I never thought were even possible. Did you have any clue that something wasn't right? It, it got to a point where I did. And, and quite frankly, yeah. I thought I was going uh, crazy. Uh, part of it was the person that the affair was with is somebody I, I would never imagine her having an affair with. And so that, that was part of it. Yeah. Um, so I felt like maybe I was going crazy. And then, and then of course, she was dishonest with me. I, I knew already before the affair happened that there was distance in our marriage. But just intuition, as soon as the affair started to happen, I knew something was really wrong. But it took a little time for it to uh, it to come out. I mean, within a month, it came out. Yeah. So was there, I mean, you just didn't have the experience or the comparative whatever to say, I'm feeling some distance in our marriage. I need to pursue my wife more. Well, I think or, I think that I knew that that was there. I didn't know how to deal with it. I see. Now, you don't go to counseling until the bomb goes off, right? Right. I mean, the wise thing would be, we've got some distance, let's work on it. But I, I wasn't wise. I was I was foolish. And foolishness is knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. You know, and, and I've, I've got to own that because as the leader in the marriage, knowing there were issues, I didn't deal with them. And again, I never, I never thought this bomb was going to go off. And then right. it, it did. So when you hear now, like, Katrina was was jealous of your calling and your ministry, and what was going through your mind? Was that I, a was that a shock? Yeah, I knew that on some level, um, so it wasn't a it wasn't a shock, but I didn't know how how deep that that rabbit hole went. You know, yeah. again, a lot of us, I think, go into ministry because we need it. Well said. And and what we need is applause, accolades, you know, whatever. Uh, there is a performance aspect to various um, sides of ministry. You know, you're on a stage, there's lights, you're funny, people clap, all that kind of thing, whether it's worship or preaching or whatever you're doing on the stage. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of unhealth that you can mask under the guise of ministry. Right. So... And that was me to a T. I mean, I probably, Bible college for me was somebody probably suggested that I would be amazing there. And so I probably did that because I was concerned about that person's approval. Or I was on stage leading worship because people were looking at me and I got to do this really cool thing. And oh yeah, you know, Jesus too. But mostly it was about me. You know what I'm saying? And so it was such a, 
a self-absorbed place that I was in. It wasn't about God. It certainly wasn't about following what he wanted for my life. It was what, how could I meet my own needs? And I'm using religion to do that. Wow. So Chad, let me ask you a follow-up question here. This is something that I hear a lot um, when I'm talking to couples, you know, who are working in ministry and I'm trying to, to coach them or mentor them. How is like a, a pastor and a, and a husband with a, with a wife that is, is feeling that way? How would you say that we should encourage that or approach that issue in our marriage? Yeah, I think you're, you're talking about a very uh, specific uh, situation. Um, you know, if a spouse is jealous of another in the realm of, of ministry, um, the issue is, is what lies beneath. Mm-hmm. I, I think some guys may, you know, if it's the wife that's jealous, so I'll, I'll go this route. Some guys disrespect their wives. Uh, Katrina yeah. uh, has great intuition. She is much smarter than me uh, in, a, in a wide array of, of things. And so the wise thing for me is always to listen to her. If she's seeing something in leadership, she's seeing something in the church, those kinds of things to respect her uh, opinion and see her as a confidant and a, and a partner. And, and I think, I, I think, sweetheart, we're at, that, we're at that point now. And so hopefully she sees herself as a, as a partner with me in, in some of those things. What's, what's interesting now, so our, our church is, is, is pretty large. And so there's less expectations of a pastor's wife when the, when the church is, is large. And yet mm-hmm. Katrina is probably more of a partner with me today uh, than she ever was way back when the church was, was small. And yeah. I think it's because we have a healthy relationship in the sense of she's helping me, you know, be a better leader. She's helping me see things I otherwise wouldn't see. And I think the wise thing uh, would be, if you're in that situation, is to listen to your spouse. I think if there is jealousy there, uh, you need to go sit with somebody and, and talk about it and, yeah. and work that out. And, uh, you know, the problem is not the fruit of jealousy. The problem is the root of it, right? Like, where's, where's this coming from? Yeah. Um, I'm a huge advocate for counseling, especially for people who are in ministry. And yes. if uh, some of the listeners are at a place where, like, we can't be honest with anybody, we'll go pay somebody and be honest with them. Right. Uh, because you need help and you need that kind of environment. The Bible calls it walking in the light, and there's always healing there if, if you'll allow it. Well said. This is a total generalization, but I find that husbands today are really afraid to, to confront bad behavior in their marriage. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're not always willing to, to pick the fight to say, you're, you're being unkind or you're being unnice or yeah, I don't deserve the attitude that you're, that you're giving me right now, what's going on, you know? And so there's a fear of, of just leading our wives, right? Yeah. Well, let me, I'll, I'll, and I'll confess you my sin then, and it's still a sin that I struggle with now. Um, you know, in the church, uh, I'm a big L leader, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I take initiative, I'm proactive, I strategize, I think through things, I make a plan, I work the plan, I listen to the Holy Spirit, I'm convicted, I'm courageous. I mean, there's all those things, but I'm very passive at home mm-hmm. uh, if, I, if I'm not careful. Um, and the reason that is, a couple things. Uh, one is, I was raised by a single mom. So in the home I grew up in, my mom made all the decisions because there wasn't a man. Mm-hmm. And so there's a default there that's unhealthy that I've learned and 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 have to deal with. And and I'm still learning and and working through that passivity that I probably uh, was handed because of that environment 
uh, growing up. Uh, and then the other part of that sin is uh, I spend all my emotional energy at work. And so when I come home, uh, sometimes I'm passive because I don't have the energy to lead. And that's wow. sin as well. And so I think in both of those things, um, God's, God's teaching me. I'm learning to not just manage time, but energy. And Katrina needs me uh, to lead at home. And, and part of that is, is leading her in a way that is uh, kind and respectful, but, but also is necessary. You know, at, at work, I'll say love first, lead second, uh, but always do both. Yeah. And I haven't always done that at home. And so I, I think, um, you know, for the guys who are listening, uh, leadership doesn't stop when you leave the office. Uh, the most important conversations you have every day uh, or need to be having every day are in the four walls of your house. The most important small group you're a part of is your family. I mean, there's, there's all those kinds of, of thoughts. And so my sin that um, I, you know, have repented of and, and learning to continue to repent of is that passivity because leadership is, is, is so important uh, in, your, in your house, much, much more so, I think, than in the church. I think that's why it's a biblical requirement, by the way, to be right. a pastor. I love that. I love that you break it down into into two forms when you say your passivity is caused one by default, but two that you're you're emotionally spent by the time that you get home, that you're laying it all out at church and then you're not bringing anything home. That's Chad, that's really wise. And you've got like light bulbs going off in my head right now. And I just want to say, I don't think that that's something that we ever consider in our in ourselves like i don't think that that's something that would ever just occur to well i know it wouldn't ever just occur to me to say my relationships at home are suffering because you know i go to work and leaving everything there just you know whatever emotional reservoir i have i'm just i'm just spending it on on all this other stuff and i never had considered that before yeah, that is thanks. Really um, I, I've learned not the hard way, so <laughs> I paid a yeah. big price to be able to tell you that uh, and can quite frankly still still pay little prices on, on occasion. I used yeah. to think that, you know, when the church gets to this point or whatever, then, then it'll be easier. It's not. You are responsible for your schedule and you are responsible for your own emotional energy. And so you have to think through that. Yeah. So at our church, what I have to think through is, is what are the things that only I can do? And mm -hmm. at the top of that list is only I can be a husband to Katrina, only I can be a dad to our boys. And so that has to be at the top of my uh, energy investment because nobody you know, else. That's not even, that doesn't even make the list on most people. You know, you go through that whole like leadership exercise of what, what are the things that I need to delegate and things like that. Um, you're the first person I've ever talked to that has said only I can be a husband and only I can be a father. Usually it's like, well, only I can, I can preach the sermon or only I can do this, but I can delegate the communion and I can delegate the worship. And I don't have to, I don't have to sign the visitor letters. They say, you know, God, I'm working at the church. Please take care of my family. Reverse it. God, I'm going to take care of my family. Jesus, you're in charge of the church. Please take care wow. of things there. Wow. Just reverse that prayer. So good. Bam. That's so good. I know. I'm, I married a winner. I know. I'm so excited now. I'm excited about your husband, Katrina. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's so, that's such, I mean, man, that is wisdom right there, brother. That's so good. So I want to talk about how your church handled this situation. And I want to talk about like your experience of, of, of going back, Katrina, what was that like for you? And I mean, there's a whole area here because 
on, you know, unfortunately, this happens quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What was your What was your church's response when when they found out? Well, I think it was a very healthy response. It was it was a difficult response for me, but it was biblical, and it's supposed to be difficult for me because it was spiritual discipline. But basically, um, each service was told what had happened, not the details, but but the bottom line of what had happened. It the worship pastor's name was said and my name was said and we were both you know high profile leaders in the church so a different pastor obviously not chad uh at the time talked about what had happened and i think that was very wise thing to do because news of it would have gotten out anyway and it's not healthy to try and sweep things under the rug so i think our church got some counsel and they shared it with everybody that came to service they asked that they would pray for all parties concerned and and then they were encouraged not to fuel gossip, but to quash it. And so they were told what was happening, but they were also told how to deal with the news they were just given. Um, I was, um, in a sense, not allowed to come to Sun Valley until I had repented, which was, of, I mean, I wouldn't have come anyway. You know what I'm saying? It was like this such a weird, awkward situation. But yeah. then once, once we you know walked through all the, the counseling and we got back together and all that, then they had a restoration service, um, which if you, if you have the, the reprimand service in a way, but you don't have the restoration service, should the outcome present itself that there can be a restoration service, then I think you're doing a disservice to the parties involved and Mm -hmm. to the church because um, during that service, they had me come up on stage and they, they told the church what had happened, and now you know the the result of of our of us working together and working on our marriage and Chad forgiving me and all that sort of thing. And then I got to share a few words. I got to thank the people that continued to love me and to pray for me. And it was it it was a celebration, frankly, and it was humbling. It was so humbling, but mm. it was also so good. And in that service, I recognized that even though I had performed so poorly, because remember, it was all about performance for me, I could still be loved. And I was shown such wonderful grace by our church that day. And yeah, there was maybe like 0.001% of people that hated me and wanted nothing to do with me. But yeah. the majority of people, overwhelming majority of people loved me wanted to hug me, told me that they'd been praying for me, told us how grateful and happy they were for us. And it was this wonderful um, sort of living this whole saga, as you will, in front of everybody that then had this wonderfully happy ending that then God could really use to say, you know, I could point to God and say, look what he did. And if he could do it for us, he certainly can do it for you. And so Mm -hmm. it was really quite wonderful. When she was not at the church, what was your relationship and position at the church like? Yeah, so when it all happened, um, they did bring Katrina in, meaning the elders, mm-hmm. and interview her in the sense of, you know, had I done anything wrong, would there be anything that would disqualify me from ministry and things like that? And Katrina, you know, communicated that there hadn't. And so uh, the elder board came to me and said, you know, we love you and we want to help you. And from our understanding, there's nothing that would disqualify you from marriage. And we want to be here for you, uh, or excuse me, from ministry. And we want to be here for you and we want to help you in this. And so they really kind of stuck with me. And then I, I took a break, you know, teaching and preaching. Uh, as far as my schedule, 
in the week, you know, the, the, I was not the lead pastor at the time. And so the lead pastor really gave me a lot of freedom because mm-hmm. uh, there would be moments I just would need to go for a walk and, and then come back and things like that. And then after um, a couple of three months, even though Katrina was not at home, they let me teach uh, again publicly and, uh, you know, welcome me back and the church prayed for me. And I, I would talk about it in sermons and things like that and what I was learning and what we were going through. And then, of course, when we uh, when I uh, welcomed Katrina back home and we did the restoration service, then it was it was full on again. And even though we were uh, struggling in our marriage, God, God was doing a work. And quite frankly, that restoration service held me accountable. Because I'd stood up, the church was about 800 people, I think, at the time, um, 1,000 people. And I stood up in front of the, the church, you know, with Katrina. And so people are, know that we're working on our marriage. And, and there was a community of accountability and love and grace for, for the both of us. And so I think the elders of the church, the lead pastor at that time, handled it really well. Katrina, you, you talked about one of the things that I, I think that I, I know to be true is that when there's a lack of joy, um, that lack of joy really enables us to justify any number of things in our lives. Like suddenly we can, we can talk ourselves into anything just so that we're not hurting anymore. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that you said that you were, that there was a time when you were looking in the mirror and it was like, you know, who is this person? What, what did that recovery look like for you? Just, just working through your own issues. Um, well, I, I didn't know who I was. Um, I think I'd been uh, an approval addict for so long that I would be whoever you wanted me to be hmm. in whatever situation I was in. And I, you know, growing up with parents that really didn't show me much love or affection, I sought that love and affection anywhere and everywhere else. And so um, I, I just funneled it into performing well in academics and in sports. And I remember one time somebody looking over to my mom and saying, wow, you have such an amazing daughter. You must be so proud. And my mom just kind of smiling and nodding, you know, and that's that to me was what I was always searching for, that validation. But that validation would only last so long before I would need another hit. So then you fast forward into marriage and you have all these dreams and notions of what marriage is going to be like. And then you get in it and and it's not like that. And I didn't know who I was. I didn't really know what I wanted because I'd never really taken the time to figure that out. And so recovery for me was kind of getting to know me. And then it was getting to know really God because I knew a lot of head knowledge about God. I knew a lot of Bible verses and I knew I mean, I, you know, we were both at school together, Rocky, we, mm-hmm. you know, the classes we took, we, we had some major Bible classes. So I knew a lot about God and I'd seen God in many ways in my life, but I, I still hadn't made a big connection between God's true love for me and that I could rest in that, that I didn't need to perform for everybody. And so the, the affair was just kind of a knock on effect of, uh, it was like you said, uh, I, I was looking for something to take away the pain and, and, and it was an addiction. It was something to make me feel better before it had been perfectionism and winning the approval of others. That was an addiction. Then I kind of moved into performance and people thinking I was all that. And then it was, you know, academics. And then it just moved into a different area. And it was this person that thought I was this wonderful person or whatever, but then I just became addicted to that feeling. 
And so my um, pain didn't lessen. I just chose different things to try and numb that pain. And so recovery was amazing for me because uh, working through the 12 steps really helped me to look back on my life and deal with past issues that I hadn't dealt with. And I dealt with the current issues that I had created, but then it also gave me a plan for the future and tools to deal with the future because life is always going to keep coming. It was, um, it was really wonderful to go through that experience. It was very difficult, but it was, um, it, you just learn so much. I love that you, you refer to yourself as an approval addict. That, that implies a couple of things to me. One, that it's a compulsive behavior. Right. It's this thing that um, that you're just constantly seeking and doing, and it just becomes this uh, this habitual part of your life that overtakes everything. Uh, and then two, it, the implication is that you're you're having to make the choice to to deal with that every day. Is that true? Well, it was back then. I think the, the underlying root of that was the, my belief that I was not enough. Right. That I wasn't worth much. And, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about with knowing what God has says and, and really believing what God says. Right. And so I think I was slowly, and I still am, slowly making that transition to I am enough. I am worth so much. I am deeply loved. But it, it, it takes a long time. And then now it's kind of like a, my reflex or my knee-jerk reaction might be, oh, I got to seek this person's approval. But then I can go wait a second. I don't actually. Yeah. Guys, this has just been really wonderful. The wisdom and the testimony that have come out of it is just blowing me away. Thank you guys for, uh, for sharing your story, sharing your heart. Is there, um, are there any resources that you would recommend to, to couples or, or any final thoughts that you have for our listeners? Well, I have a final thought for sure. I think I have two thoughts. One, I want to just make sure that that was then, this is now scenario. I was jealous. I was bitter. I kind of hated my husband then. And now I get to be his biggest champion. I get to be his number one fan. I get to be in his corner. I get to cheer him on and support him. And that brings me great joy. And mm. it is so cool to watch God do incredible things through my husband. So I take great delight in that. That's just God doing his thing, you know? And then the other thing too is, I just think as a woman uh, in all marriages, we do want to be heard. And even if we're hiding, we don't want to be hiding. And so you guys were having that conversation about, you know, if, you're, <laughs> if there's bad behavior, how to confront it. I, I just think that a great way to do that would be just to state how you're feeling. Hey, I feel a little distant from you, or I sense the little animosity or something going on tell me what's going on tell me how you're feeling and help you know draw out the feelings of the other to show that you not only care what they think but want to help them in that moment too so yeah and i love how you say to draw out because our temptation is going to be well are you okay and then i'm fine mm -hmm. and the okay you're fine and then go watch tv yeah yeah but and that is that's such a great temptation because like we, we're mostly tired when we do get home from our days. And it, it does take emotional energy to say, hey, I noticed this. Tell me what's going on. And, and, but it's so much easier just to go, oh, let's just go watch TV. And it, but it's just carrying 
maybe that little bit more deeply or just praying for that extra strength in that moment because it's worth it. And, and nothing that is good comes easily. And our marriage now is good. It, it's still got lots of room for improvement, but we're working on that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but it was just worth all that work and effort. Yeah, I would parting thought for me. I, I would ask anybody who's listening, in any of your relationships, what are you pretending is not a problem? Hmm. Because whatever it is to heal from it, you have to deal with it. Uh, there's this great lie that exists that time heals all wounds. Uh, that's not true. Uh, Jesus heals all wounds, hmm. and Jesus is the light. Uh, and so if you're going to take it to him and allow him to heal you, you you've got to bring it into the light, which means uh, you've got to get counseling. Uh, we are big proponents in our church of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, those 12 steps are the steps of sanctification, are the steps that you walk through uh, that Jesus uses to change your heart and your life. And so go to recovery, go to counseling, two kinds of people in the world, those who are in recovery and those who are in denial, there is no middle ground. And so mm. all of us uh, can benefit from that. And so, yeah, what are you pretending is not a problem? Uh, because to heal from it, you got to deal with it. And so what, what steps do you need to take to, to deal with it? And in that experience, some healing. So good. Thank you guys again for being on our, on our podcast. I really appreciate it. I pulled so many nuggets of wisdom from this episode. There are so many little things that I learned about relationships and interacting and prioritizing. And I'm so grateful to our guests today. Chad and Katrina, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for telling us the redemptive process that you went through. I am so encouraged by it. And I know that our listeners are too. If you're wanting your marriage to get better, I hope that you learned that it takes intentionality and work and focus. But it's not impossible. Good marriages exist in ministry, but they do take work. Our show today was produced by Timothy Jenkins. Check out our website at ProductiveMinistry.org. If you would like to continue this conversation, check us out on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ProductiveMinistry.org. On Twitter at ProdMinistry, that's P-R-O-D Ministry. Like and share this episode. Rate, subscribe. Those things really do help us out. Every time you share, it helps us out. Productive Ministry is a production of rumblemedia.llc. And as always, we hope you have a productive week.